as uh, Josh has just mentioned, this is our third week. And, and in the first week of the series about loving Jesus, you know, we heard the reality that it's not a, a singular pursuit, it's a mutual pursuit. That it's not only that we are to pursue him, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the great commandment that Jesus gave, but also that he is pursuing us in a love relationship, that he's desirous of every one of us. There's not one here that he is not desiring to know better and more intimately. The second week, last week, if you were here, there was some bald guy up here, and he was all fiery, and he was expressive, and, and Pastor Joe is a hard act to follow, but he's a good act to follow. Because Joe made it crystal clear that the language of love with Jesus Christ is obedience. Sometimes we don't like to connect those two words. We think of love being all about emotion and affection and care. And here comes this word from Jesus when he says, my love language is the love language of obedience. If you love me, you'll obey me. Well, you know, I've already mentioned the great commandment. I've already said this, that this is the one thing. If you, if you would just begin again, hit the reset button in your life and look at your life and say, what's the one thing, no matter how many days I have to live, no how many years I may live, what's the one thing I am to do with this life? Just stop and ask. Jesus clarifies that. You are to love him with all that you are. Because he loves us, because his love is so fine and so pure and so perfect, he would never tell us to prioritize our life that way unless it would do two things. One, it would glorify him. And then secondly, it would satisfy our longings. It would satisfy that heartache, that woundedness, that brokenness in our hearts because this world terribly disappoints. I can only imagine the shadow of the valley the valley of the shadow of death in Paris this morning. Can only imagine how ripped and torn that community is. How many thousands of people are now mourning. You know, life is. We are in grave danger in this life. There's, there's great sorrow and great loss. But God offers us such hope. And God offers us himself. I've titled this message... The infinite glories of Jesus Christ. And the reason I've titled that, the more I looked at this, the more I pursued understanding of it, the more pastors I listened to and commentaries I read, they all kept saying the same thing. That Paul, nowhere, anywhere in all of his letters of the New Testament, neither him nor John nor Peter nor James or all, any writers in the New Testament ever put together a, a block of two or three paragraphs that more glorifies Jesus Christ. This section is something that maybe you should memorize. This Colossians 1, 15 through 23. This might be for you the, the, the anchor in life. Because when it gets dark, and when it gets dangerous, and when it gets lonely, and when it gets full of pain, there is something we need to sky our eyes to. There's something we need to lift our heads to. And it is to him. It is to this glorious God. Let's read together. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He gets right to it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, there's about 600 in the room. And why have we come? You see, we have come here to worship God. He is the everlasting, infinite God of the universe. He is beyond all measurement. He cannot be contained or fully comprehended. He is in all places at all times. He is the environment we exist in every moment of our lives. His word says in Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. He overflows the bounds of creation. He declares of himself that he fills heavens and earth. He is merciful and just. He is holy. He is pure. He is filled with grace and mighty beyond all. He is all wise. He is all knowing. And the doer of deeds that are far beyond any measure. We have come into this place to corporately join together and lift up to this God the sacrifice of praise. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what day, what kind of week you had, this is a place for you to push these things aside and to focus your mind and your heart and your will on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise and honor your great name here today. We give you all the glory. Lord, what we ask of you today is that you would give us the affections that correspond to the measure of your greatness. Awaken our hearts, O Lord, for they do grow cold. For you, Lord Jesus, are the greatest person, the greatest power, you are the greatest wisdom. And you are the greatest love that exists. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You see, we've entered this place for one purpose. One major primary purpose, and that is to worship him. We come this hour to offer our great God praise and prayers and sacrifices. My mom was an Irish Catholic lady. Eileen McKinney. Eileen McKinney. What a name, huh? And Eileen McKinney used to say, going out the door, oh, 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 I forgot my envelope. Oh, wait, no, don't, wait, I forgot my envelope. And when I'm saying, Mom, Mom, it's okay, that $4, you're going to, you know, Mom. But she'd say, I would never, 
never attend church and not make an offering to God. I would never come without an offering. You see, one sacrifice will be the words of our voices as we sing adoration to God. In fact, we've structured this service that at the end there's more worship. Did you notice we're quick here? That's because at the end of this message, I pray that you will be filled with a readiness to worship God. That's part of our sacrifice. Our other sacrifices are obviously our time and treasures that we offer, the prayers we'll lift. But some of us in the room today are going to go to an extreme. I don't know who, but many of us today in this room are going to go to an extreme and maybe repeat something we've done before, or maybe for the first time we'll do this. And we will offer our lives as living sacrifices. You see, we don't, we don't use this area as an altar very often. We don't need to be ceremonial about this and say, this is the altar. There's an altar in your heart, and there's a place for you to lay this life down. God dwells. And today, some of us will offer our lives living sacrifices. You see, the, the book that we're studying today, the short part of Colossians, is a book about a young church that was in trouble. It was in trouble because it was so young, and it was just being established. It was being established in those first decades. And, and while it's being established, in were coming these Judaizers, and in were coming these philosophies, and in were coming these mystic teachers. And, and what was happening in that young church that Paul heard about was that they were starting to wonder about Jesus. Where does he fit into this? Where does he fit in the puzzle of spirituality? It's just like America. It's just like our culture now. Well, I can take a little bit of meditation from the Buddhists. I can take a little bit of ideas from New Age. I can take a little bit of this. I can take, well, where's Jesus fit in? Where, where's the piece of the puzzle that's about this Jewish rabbi, Messiah? Where does Jesus fit in? So Paul defends this church because he's a good shepherd. He defends this church by writing this letter. The young church needed to be reinforced against these assaults, just as you do. See, the Mormons will knock on your door and they'll say, Jesus became a God. And you have to say, no, Jesus is God, was always God. He's the eternal God, Jehovah God. And the JWs will knock on your door and say, oh, 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 we want to talk to you about Jesus from our Bible. And we want to talk to you about how Jesus is a God. And we need to say, no, 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 Jesus is the God. He's not a God. He's not a minor God. He's not a secondary God. He is the primary. He is the one. You see, that's what cults have always done against the church. They attack the person of Jesus Christ. And your stature in heaven, your position in the spiritual realm is based upon what do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you certainly have laid your life down and surrendered. You've been born again. You've been transformed by the Spirit of God coming to live inside of you, by your surrender to Him and His divine grace to rescue you. But some of you haven't. Some of you have not. Today may be that day. See, Paul was sitting in a Roman prison. He was writing this letter. Now, Roman prisons, you know, never, we're not talking about comfort. He was chained. He had lost everything. He needs cloaks. He needs, he needs everything because he's lost everything for the sake of Christ. Now that he's there, now what Paul had, what will he have to say now that he's lost everything for Jesus? As we shall explore today, Paul proclaims some of the greatest truths about the Lord Jesus. Now, I've been asked by Chad and by the leaders of our church to share for the purpose of prayer 
and for bearing one another's burdens, my current condition. In 10 days, on November 25th, I have a scheduled brain surgery to remove as much as possible a tumor that's been discovered. I've had a difficult summer and fall of discomfort and discovery. The neurosurgeons at the Cleveland Clinic believe the tumor is benign and that I can return to better health after my recovery. I intend to get through this episode and return to full activity in the new year. I pray that God's will will be done and that he receive glory through my life. I ask that you would pray for me and my family <clears throat> as we walk with full trust in Jesus through this season. You see, we know our God and he is faithful. Now let's think about loving Jesus, huh? Let's think about loving Jesus. That's what we're trying to focus on today. The deeper you know someone, the greater your love can be. As I get to know my grandchildren, the little intricacies, the little parts and pieces of their personality, the little changes that are still emerging, my love grows. If I spend months and months away from them, I, I will lose a little bit of that, that concentration of love. And knowing Christ is to know him. Today we're going to sing a song about knowing Jesus. About knowing Jesus. And I pray that that song can emit from a heart of sincerity. Verse 15. It first starts, the first half of this verse starts, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> Our God that gave the Ten Commandments strictly spoke against forbidding, making images of any gods. All right. All of human culture, all of human anthropology reveals this. People will worship something. If they're hot like the Incas were warm and the sun, you know, covered the sky in South America, they, <clears throat> they worshiped the sun. If a great beast was able to bring forth harvest because they could tie the ox and they could use it for the plowing, then they would worship a beast. They would worship animals. They would worship things in the, in the forest. They would worship things in the sky. They would worship the invisible things, right? But, but God said, don't make any image. We're not talking about that when God says in his word that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word image here does not reflect an attempt of a handmade copy. Rather, it's a word in Greek, an icon that, that represents two ideas, likeness and manifestation. When Paul said he is the image of the invisible God, what he was telling us was this is the absolute same. This is actually the manifestation of the invisible God. He has chosen through his wisdom to reveal himself on earth. Jesus is God with skin on. John the apostle, right? The one that Jesus loved. The one who wrote the gospel, the one who wrote those letters in the book of Revelation, he expressed this marvelous mystery in the first chapter of his gospel. He wrote, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Otherwise, <clears throat> Paul, writing to Hebrews, listen how clear the scripture is here in Hebrews 1. 
Well, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hallelujah. Jesus reveals perfectly the character and the attributes of our God. Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus that you worship? Do you think of him this way? Have your thoughts been lifted and lifted and lifted till you are, in your own mind, you couldn't think of him more highly, more esteemingly? You see, when I was a little kid, I began to learn about God. And there was catechism class. Do you guys remember catechism class? You know, Sister Mary, whatever, was teaching catechism class and up and down the rows, and you had to recite your catechism. And the big question was the first question, who is God? And I was probably about six years old and not very smart. I had lots of problems. And, um, and I stood up in my, steep, my white shirt, my blue tie, and SMS on my tie, and I said, God is the supreme being. And I sat down, and I thought, what kind of vegetable is that? What is that, a supreme being? I, I could not comprehend what being was. And so I thought he was some kind of vegetable, a supreme being. I know that's so dumb. It's, oh, and you're so smart. You never say, you never had that kind of thing happen, right? Yeah, right. You see, in the wisdom of God, loving him and the price that had to be paid to satisfy him, God needed to come. No one could save us. <laughs> no one could rescue us. No one could come in our midst and be perfect and satisfy the holiness of God, the requirement of God the Father for all the sin of the world. No one could do that. So in exactly the moment that God chose, he sent his son into the world. And his son, Jesus Christ, this was God in flesh. You see, next month we're going to marvel at the, the thought again as we review the, the incarnation, the coming of Christ. And I pray you'll have the best Christmas season you've ever had. Because I pray that what you'll do during that season is just keep thinking about him. And just keep meditating and just keep your mind, thoughts all, everything toward him. See, in even more exact words were spoken when Jesus spoke of who, was, who he is, when he spoke to Philip in 14.9, in John 14.9. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, it doesn't get any clearer than that. He is the visible expression of, of the invisible God. Now I ask you with eyes of faith, do you know him? Or are you like Philip, wondering, is there another one? The second part of verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. See, in a common Hebrew expression, it was a common expression for them to say firstborn when they're talking about who's the most honored in the group. 
Jacob was called the firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn, right? Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, not to say that he's, he is a part of creation, but rather that he is over creation, that he has all authority over it. He's the heir of all things. All things belong to him, and he's the owner of everything. You see, in verse 18, we see it again. In that verse, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Now, we know Lazarus had risen from the dead, right? Jesus raised Lazarus. He called him out of the grave. And we know Elijah, having pity on the widow's son, laid upon him and prayed a prayer three times over, and this boy rose from the dead. And Lazarus was, or the child was able to be restored to his mother. See, firstborn, we've got to remove the English understanding. You'd say, well, that's my oldest child. No, 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 no. The one who is greatest in honor. David was called the firstborn. And we know David was the youngest of the brothers. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Only Jesus returned to life after death and never to die again. In a way, boy, for Lazarus to have to know death twice, how how difficult was that? Although I think he knew where he was headed, right? Verse 16, for he is the heir of all creation. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You see, everything comes from Christ. Everything has originated with him. Everything we can see and touch and yet all the things that are invisible, gravity, where's that come from? From him. Where do radio waves come from? I can't see them. Where are they? From him. Not just the visible, but the invisible. All things are created by him. So as we send the telescopes out further, and as we bring back further images of this universe, and we stand in awe of what is out there and the fact that this thing is still expanding, we have to say, oh God, oh God. How great thou art. How marvelous are your ways. The heavens are declaring the glory of Christ. We hear in this powerful verse, this clear distinction. For by him all things were created. And what the distinction is, there's only two categories in everything that exists. The two categories are the created and the uncreated. God is the only uncreated being. So separate him. Absolutely remove from your conceptions any thought that he's like us. <laughs> that's scary. To me, that's a very scary thought that God's like me. No, he's not like me. He's not like anyone else. He's the uncreated God. He's divine. His attributes are infinite. His glory is un incomprehensible by man. And yet, when we listen to Jesus... We hear the voice of God. Yet when we look at what he taught, we hear the instruction of God. When we see his compassion and care, we see the love of God. And when we see him on the cross, we see his greatest love for the glory of his father and for the lost ones that he can rescue. You see, there was a lot in that verse about thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And it was because working its way into that Colossians church was this idea of we should worship angels. You see that in the book of Hebrew too. Because angels are powerful, supernatural, invisible, 
carrying messages, doing wonders. Angels are supernatural. But I would tell you, go to the book of Revelation. Go to the book of Revelation 4 and 5 and study what's going on in heaven. And see if you don't see there, as is true throughout all scriptures, the angels are worshiping Jesus. The angels are falling down. The angels are covering their faces because they can't take the glory of Jesus Christ, the lamb upon the throne. You see, even the invisible things are under his authority. And then in John chapter 1, the apostle expresses, in the beginning, the word was with God. And the word was God. In the beginning was the word, I'm sorry. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul arguing with the Athenians. He's in that marketplace of ideas. He's in Athens, you know, the center of great philosophers, great argument. And Paul is declaring there about Christ, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. All creation was made for his honor and praise. And you're part of that. So for purpose sake, what do you live for? What do you live for? There is one thing we all ought to live for, and that is for the glory of Jesus Christ, to glorify his name, to make him known, to lift him up. He is the creator. He is the purpose for which all things exist. In verse 17, it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus is eternal. He didn't start at Bethlehem. He didn't start, you know, right around the time that Mary was to become pregnant. He's the eternal God. He has always existed. No beginning. Jesus is the mystery of the universe. As science continues to wonder what the unknown force is that holds the atom together and the universe from falling apart, total chaos, our God declares it to himself, Jesus Christ. The Greeks thought Zeus held everything together. And they thought Atlas held the world on his back. You've seen that image, right? That Greek god with the, with the world sitting on his back, right? We know better the mystery is Christ. Yesterday, Jackie and I took our grandkids, two of the boys. We went to the planetarium in the Natural History Museum, right? And we're sitting in there and, wow, all this glorious stuff starts coming on the ceiling. All these stars and all these wonders, you know? And then I wish they would not have spoken at all because then they start talking. <laughs> then the recording starts. About six billion years ago, this is what happened. And seven billion years ago, that happened. And four billion years ago, this happened. And then suddenly helium joined hydrogen and the dark matter brought it together. And we have the beginning of micro... And while we're sitting there, I'm, I'm going, oh my, what faith it must take to believe this is the way. That this is God's way. In the beginning, God created everything. God created all things. I'm thankful to say that our little boy, Levi, our four-year-old, was sitting next to Jackie. And he was reading letters and so forth. And, and, he, and he said, God made those stars. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Exactly. God made those stars. What beautiful words those are. I pray we have a, a, a clear night tonight. I pray that tonight when you look up there, the words of a four-year-old will come out of your mouth. And the thoughts of a four-year-old, like, wow, how big is God? How great is God? Because he made us all. The recording went on to say, it's dark matter. Dark matter does these things. They call it dark matter because they can't discover what's holding everything together. They know by scientific law, everything should be in complete chaos. There should be no order at all to the universe. But something's holding the universe together. What is it? Something's holding every atom together. What is it? Some worry and fret. And the word of God says, he holds all things together. He holds all things together. He is eternal and the sustainer of all things. In verse 18a, and he is the head of the body, the church. And of course, Jesus is the supreme power over the church. He's the founder of the church, the author of the church, and the one sole authority of the church. See, the church operates best when it gets its marching orders from the Lord Jesus. When we hear from him, we know which way to go. It's not about our being organized. This isn't a whatever corporation you're part of. This is not about a corporate activity. This is about a living, breathing organism, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And we have a head who is Christ, who gives instructions and gives directions. Verse, he is the living head of the church. And verse 18b, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, the glory in this is that the resurrection is a guarantee of ours. Boy, this is, this is pretty important to us, isn't it? Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. The people in Thessalonica were real worried because people, members of that church, started to die. And Paul wrote them a letter as well to let them know, no, 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 we will forever dwell with him. It's not the end. Life doesn't become extinct at death. But even more significantly, Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, speaking to two women that he loved, Martha and Mary, and he was able to say to them, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And as I live, you shall live also. You see, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And what does that mean, first fruit? Well, it's because the Jews, in the beginning of harvest season, they would bring in their first fruits, the ones that first became ripe, and they would give them over to God as a sacrifice. But they were to represent the beginning of a long, massive, hopefully wide harvest season when they would keep bringing in fruit and bringing in the fruit and bringing it in. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. Hallelujah. Verse 19, for in him dwell all the fullness of God. It pleased to dwell in him. You see, like if I had a grain of sand sitting there, if I had a grain of sand sitting there and I said, okay, now we're going to see a, a, a fabulous miracle right now. We are going to ask the sun, who can't, but we're going to ask the sun to take all of its heat, all of its warmth, all of its light, all of its mass and pour it into that grain of sand. So that in this grain of sand, that massive star would be contained. But you know what? In Jesus Christ, all that God is 
was pleased to dwell in him. You don't understand that. There are mysteries in our faith. The Bible says Jesus is the mystery of our salvation. He is the mystery. He is the answer to the mysteries. The Bible further says that Christ dwells in us. And all the fullness of God dwells in him. Hallelujah. You see, Jesus in the embryo was the fullness of God. When Mary started having sour stomachs in that first trimester, when she didn't feel so good, little baby Jesus, the embryo, was the fullness of God. And when he, when he came forth in a manger in the poverty and in the stench of a barn, the fullness of God was in the hands of the mom and the dad. And as a little boy playing with the nails in the shop, as he played around in his dad's carpentry shop, the fullness of God. And as he walked around doing maybe some chores for his mom, the fullness of God. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee and he healed the sick and he, he touched the deaf and the blind, and as he began to show forth great power, the fullness of God became more and more evident. And then on that cross, the fullness of God. You see, some of you appreciate the cross much more greatly than others. Some of you esteem the cross like you ought, with absolute reverence and great, great love. He is the fullness of God. And then finally, in verses 20 through 22, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This is the gospel part of all of this, you guys, right here. So how, what are we in this? We get it. He's glorious. He's incredible. He's incomprehensible. He's beyond understanding. He is the God of all things. But this is the God who through him reconciled to himself all things on earth and in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, in Romans 8, Paul was writing about the desperate condition of sinners. And he wrote this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of, the Father, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is reconciling us. We stand before a judge who, who sees a perfect son who stands in our place and advocates for us, who places his righteousness on our account, who places his perfections on our account while our sins were laid upon him on the cross. First Peter, Peter wrote of these things also. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Hallelujah. Verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled by his body of the flesh and his, by his death, in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you get it? I certainly do. I can look at that text and say, I was the guy that was alienated from God. 
I was separate from him. I was the one who was hostile towards him in my mind. I was the one who was doing evil deeds. Who can reconcile me with God who is holy? Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, I now stand as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Not by my works, <laughs> certainly not. Not by what I've done, not by any credit of my own, but the righteousness of God that's been placed on my account through the blood and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. I stand before God, accepted as one of his. Look at Philippians 2, 8 and 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, he is our reconciler. So today, as we move through this service and as we move through the day, as you look at the beauty of the season and you see the skies of blue, as you see the stars tonight, offer him worship. Offer him praise. It may be what the scriptures say. It may be the sacrifice of praise. It may be difficult because maybe, maybe you're hurt. Maybe you're facing a difficult situation. But I'm here to tell you today, I couldn't be more satisfied than I am in Christ. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't have this joy and this peace without Christ. He is my joy. He is my peace. He is my hope. And he's ours as well. So as we begin to worship now, as we begin to sing to him, as we begin to bring him praise, let the heavens peek over the clouds and say, what's going on down there at Wallings in 77? Let the angels grow jealous as we cry out to him. God bless you today.